Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. A quick thank you to the T5 peeps, Bob the Dragon, Data Magnet, Cat Crab Lobster, Dark Machine, Estrella the Dreamer, Mesic, Feudic Yarl, and Casper Arnholtz. Thank you very much. Chapter 386 Rygalian Syrian Compact We checked the mouth of the bag. There's some temporal and gravitational anomalies that might be causing a problem beyond the temporal case Omaha, keeping Terrasol from liberal contemplation too. It's too. Nothing follows. Undoing the bag and rejoining us. We're having looked at closer. See if it's just a problem of mass balancing with the artificial singularities. Or if we just have to go in deeper on the problem and perhaps lay down some temporal... Hakanean fluffed out is not. Nothing follows. Stabilizers. Before we do anything else, nothing follows. Cybernetic organism consensus. It doesn't help that the instability in the sun system is still spreading, along with the temporal attack along Terran descent human neural tissue. Luckily, it's only affecting people at the time the temporal surge hits them. If it had gone backwards, say, to change the brains of Terran descent humans a decade ago, it would be Ackletack Free Flight. He was not! Nothing follows. Absolutely disastrous as the universe tries to balance out of temporal problems with Libao contemplation pool. He wants to watch the ending again. It's right there. Nothing follows. Events being slightly adjusted to take into account the change in Terran brains. Nothing follows. Clone Worlds Consortium. Well, it's official. Born whole clones that are active and decanted when the ripple hits their generation are reverted to pre-glassing. Dalgon Forge Worlds, he is not. Next, you're going to try and pawn off that femship indoctrination theory on us. Nothing follows. Neural implants. Lebao contemplation pool. Please, it explains everything. You just don't want to admit it that you're wrong. Nothing follows. Bother. Okay, uh, what's going on? Nothing follows. Lebao contemplation to nothing is to. Nothing follows. Digital artificial sentient systems. What has you guys so riled up? Nothing follows. Ackletack soaring worlds. Nothing is not. Nothing follows. Drowned at Highworld. <laughs> Nothing follows. Biological artificial sentient systems. What is going on with you guys? Nothing follows. Dalkin Forge worlds. Nothing is not. Nothing follows. Hakanean sunny fields. Nothing. Bemship was. Childs wasn't. Nothing follows. Tinvuru gripping hands. We're just talking about uh, trade deals. Yeah. AVP isn't a cannon. Earth Hive is. Nothing follows. Libao contemplation pool. A3 and beyond isn't canon. Earth Hive is just like TVA is canon. We're discussing jump space lanes. Nothing follows. Dalgon Forge Worlds. Dutch beat the Predator, which is why Skynet used him as a basis for the T-800 model. Stop denying it. You know it's true. Nah, uh, it's not important. Nothing follows. Dranadad Highwards. You realize that we can see you whispering at each other, right? Nothing follows. Rygonians are in compact. Wait. I recognize those references. Sis, stop showing them old movies. Nothing follows. Manted Freeworlds. Make me. Nothing follows. Rygelian Syrian Compact. It's gonna start an 8,000-year-old argument again. Nothing follows. Pavian Dominion. Oh, much, much older, you know that. And Femship wasn't indoctrinate. Maleship was. Nothing follows. Trianidad Hive Worlds. No, he wasn't. Femship was. Nothing follows. Rygelian Syrian Compact. Ah, oh, hell. Here we go again. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. <laughs> Nothing follows. Lebao contemplation pool. And I'm telling you, Charles was the thing. You can't see him breathing at the end, and McCready gives him gasoline to drink. So when he drinks it, McCready knows it's the thing. Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds. Okay, you can't use an interview with the actors years later as proof. Movie scenes only, and McCready was the thing. Nothing follows. Tinvuru gripping hands. 
and the thing was fleeing the predators, which is why Dutch had to fight one in the jungle. Culling follows. Hagenay and Fluffpods. Those movies aren't related. Nothing follows. Dog and Forge Worlds. Yes, they all are. It's so obvious. Just watch them this time. Nothing follows. Mantid, Free Worlds. <laughs> Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Consensus. I'm going to try to figure out how to fix the damn bag. Don't have time for this. Skynet did nothing wrong. Nothing follows. Mantid, Free Worlds. <laughs> End of chapter. Chapter 387. I was a mere gunner, 15th class, when we heard the sound that any member of the Great Herd's military forces strengths to hear. Hold the line, brothers! It roared out over every speaker, from every pane of glass, echoed from every flat surface, blinked from every pane of smart glass, and every display. The call to arms of the Terran Confederacy. The pre-battle warning roar of the universe's most terrible creation. Insane, highly intelligent bipedal lima primates with enough savagery to fill a dozen other species. I closed my eyes, all four on my knees shaking, my crests inflating protectively as the sound roared out. The precursors were here, and that was bad enough. But the Terrans... That was like discovering that the fire that you were battling is about to be stopped by the detonating of a nuclear weapon. Sure, it stops the fire, but at what cost? My knees started to buckle as despair filled me. A black yawning maw full of eyes and tentacles that reached out for my soul to drag me into the depths and render me nothing more than a shivering bag of meat whose mind had shattered. A darkened female passed me, unseen crying softly. I heard her sounds of distress, the pitiful sobbing reaching through the darkness, through the horror, through the terror, a sound of anguish of a being who was powerless to do anything to save her life of being destroyed all around her. Strength filled my body, filled my soul, and I straightened up, opening my eyes. The armored recovery vehicle, the hover bus, and the badly damaged hover tank were before me. My crew, my men, my faithful soldiers stood staring at me. Melt the vehicles! I need a volunteer to drive the tank as I shall act as its gunner, I stated, trotting towards the tank. The entire side was ripped open, exposing the crew cabin. I would not need to open the rear crew loading ramp. Then must I. You will not be protected, Fielminta said wringing her hands. It does not matter. This must be done. Thus, I shall be the one to do it, I told her. I will drive, a wounded Sabashan told me. I drove tanks from the motor pool to the maintenance base, as well as tested the drivetrains after repair for refit. I will run your defensive systems, another told me. A talker with burn bandages down his side told me. Then we shall ride into defeat and glory together. The inside of the tank stunk of burnt flesh, and we climbed in. It started. The auto loader whined as it brought a plasma round from the munition storage into the chamber. The fans howled, and the entire thing vibrated. It was wounded, mortally so, but could still fight. My driver, Karalash, rotated the tank and, at my direction, led our pathetic convoy out to the hastily assembled base and into the city. We should have reloaded the flares and chaff and smoke, the Talgan Lu Usulu said softly, as she activated the electronic countermeasures up and activated the wan and flickering battle screens. Remember, if we encounter precursor machines, we pull them away from the hover bus, I ordered. We may only be able to buy them a few minutes, but those minutes may mean the difference between life and death for an entire busload of people. As you say, Most High, Lu Usulu said. I was chewing stomach-cupped, my brain singing with that tight, almost heard sound, that strange feeling that a wire inside your mind has had too much tension put on it. I needed sleep, but there was no time for that. Too many depended on me. 
who were on the third half when the high-intensity lasers cracked out, the high-energy beams superheating the air that then collapsed back into the near vacuum with rippling, snarling thunder. The portside battle screen fled, but held. Karadash spun the vehicle in place as I pushed my mask face against the gunner's sight, lifting my hoof in readiness. The machine was function over form, rocky and heavy, a rotating barrel mining laser slicing at the tank with a continuous beam of coherent light. It slid into my sight, but the sight's electronics kept wavering and pixelating, telling me that there was no target. Shot out! I snapped, training overriding my fear as my mouth went dry and my tendrils curled protectively. I stomped the firing lever. The plasma round hit it dead center, washing it with the protomatter fire. The fire cleared and the mining machine still stood there. Our weapons were almost useless. We were all doomed. The words of the hysterical Most High floated up in my mind as I clenched my jaws on my stem cut. The targeting computer fought me as I tried to realign the barrel and I reached out and slapped the override, sending the VI back into its storage and taking over the gun myself. I lowered the barrel as Karalash skidded the tank sideways, away from the hover bus, and the precursor machine turning to follow us. Shot out! I yelled as I stomped the lever. The plasma round hit just in front of the machine, the heavy burst of matter-energy combination slamming into the ferrocrete road in a bright flash at an angle. The ferrocrete liquefied and then flash-hardened by the heat of the plasma round, crashed into the machine. Its battle screen flared purple, and collapsed. Shot out! The third shot dug another chunk of road out, the matter hitting the precursor machine and caving in the large central structure. It shot sparks and collapsed. Even though the environmental hookups weren't engaged, I had been in my armor for nearly two days. I still had to urinate as we kept sliding to the side. I licked my lips and tendrils, my mouth dry, as our slide brought another precursor machine into view. I moved the barrel, still running it on manual, even as part of me paid attention to the way my lower right hand fired the coaxial gun mounted next to the main gun. I stomped the bar twice in rapid succession. The first shot hit the heavy ground car, causing it to explode and lift up off the ground. My second shot hit the car again, slamming it into the precursor machine. I fired a third time at twisted and burning wreckage. Precursor battle steel part showered out of the twisted carnage. More precursors, a lot more, most high helmet ore, Lu'u called out. We're being locked up. Go through them, I shouted, loading another round of high-energy plasma war shot into the tank. I changed channel. Melkor, this is helmet ore. Do you read? I asked. I hear you, most high, Melkor shouted over the roar of the hover bus's fans and the noise of the passengers. Get them to safety. We'll buy you time, I yelled. I changed channels. Prepare to meet the ancestors, I told my faithful crew. We do this because we must, and there is no one else. No better beings existed than those two who rode with me, as no better beings existed than those that marched with you into your own personal house. The tank was moving at maximum speed when we slammed between two heavy cargo lifters, throwing them to the side. I managed to fire the main gun twice, the additional heavy plasma machine guns all on autonomous rapid fire, the two heavy plasma rounds crashing into the ground to rake the precursors that we were suddenly mixed in with, with shattered pieces of ferrocrete. Karalesh spun us in place, the skirt of the plemon chamber scraping the ground and throwing the fan of sparks behind us. I double-pumped the coolant into the chamber, forcing the cycle on an empty chamber and loaded a plasma round in half the time I should have, slapping the override for the gunnery system. I was the gunner, not the computers, not the VI. Me. I may have been only a gunner, 15th class, but by the Terran's digital omni-messiah and the 12 biological disciples, it was I who would wield this mortally wounded beast's claws against the foe of all living things. Alarms were waning as I kept firing, Half my shots hitting the Ferrocrete Street, slashing at the mechs with shrapnel. Some of them covering the mechs with burning plasma long enough for me to get another shot into them. Lusalu launched two EW drones in quick succession, one of them almost getting sucked into the tank's open crew space by a sudden backdraft. 
and sent them at the precursors. I reached out, slapped the override, and ramped their tiny micro-reactors into overload, right as Lucilu slammed her hand down on the self-destruct button. Both drones detonated, the microfusion detonation biting a huge chunk out of the precursor ranks as Karalash ground his teeth and drove us straight into. My teeth were itching, my bones aching, my guts aching, as the tanks hover vans roared and we moved straight into the burning smoke of the explosion. Finally, a stomp on the loading lever brought nothing but a steady beeping. We were out of ammo. Sound retreat, I ordered. Aye, Most High, Bruce Lu said. As you command, Most High, Karalash said, sounding exhausted. The tank stunk of excrement and burnt electropropellant and of overheated mollusks of urine, sweat, and fear. All three of us, our armor was pitted, cracked, and bubbled. I was blind on one side, either because my helmet had failed or my eyes were gone. It didn't matter as we raced, billowing smoke for the refugee point. We had survived the night. When the refugee point came into sight, we heard it, and the small part of me that was rejoicing at having survived shriveled and died. Heavy metal incoming! Excerpt from... We were the Lanark land of the Atomic Hooves, a memoir. The googly eye was a subclass known as Squinties from the Terran Space Force. A highly stealth recon machine, it stayed silent and still and merely watched. It didn't even use battle screens, relied on a single microfusion plant for power, and watched. It was currently in near orbit, relying on gravity, speed, and angle to remain over the crashed Devastator. It had watched as the tiny specks of Terran and Lanark land tanks had approached the massive machine. It didn't bother computing the chances of success. Its lean molly cirques devoted only to recon and observation. There was a sparkling, and the squinty took a risk and opened its eye completely. The grounded precursor vanished in a white glare. The squinty could see through the clouds, could compensate for the particle haze, could see that there was left of the gutted shell with boiling molten matter at the bottom. An entire devastator. Gone. It was an electronic intelligence. It had no fear of what it was programmed to do. It compressed the data, extended an antenna, used rapid ignition to fire off the main reactor, and shot out a single compressed squeal of data. A space force particle beam blew it out of space only a nanosecond after it finished its compressed squeal. The harvester of the lessers was discontent, watching the fighting for the system. Yet alone of the ancient ones remained watching the battle in case something new reared its ugly head. So far, the data show that even the outnumbered, a hundred to one, and outmassed by a million to one, the ferals could fight hard enough and effectively enough that victory was a statistical probability. The squeal, barely gotten out, reached it, and Harvester decompressed it and examined it. What it felt was a cold, analytical equivalent of horror. It slowed it down and watched it, brain by holographic frame, examining it from as many angles as possible as provided by the miles-wide sensor arrays. The dispersion was mathematically precise, the explosion self-evident, only a single gap in the network of explosions that had no effect upon the outcome that left the Devastator a gutted burning hulk with molten matter in the bottom. Harvester paused, rewound the entire battle, and it ran at hyperspeeds. It knew what it had just witnessed. The Terrans were able to put out such devastating firepower that a harvester the size of a large city would be obliterated in a handful of seconds planetside by a bare few hundred armored vehicles. In space and in orbitals, the Terran ships were raking the precursors out of the sky. For every Terran ship that was destroyed, dozens, scores, hundreds of precursor war machines were destroyed or knocked out of action. Harvester ran the programs, ran the analysis as it slowly shifted its massive bulk, angling for good jump space entry. After seeing that, there was only one conclusion that could logically drawn. The amount of resources that would have to be devoted to produce even the barest of mathematical change of defeating the mad lemurs of terror would far outstrip decades, centuries of harvesting entire star systems the lemurs of terror did not care about resources, did not care about but one thing. 
Harvester had run the computations, had integrated levers itself. The mass of Balor knew now, understood now, something that it had not understood before. The Ancient Ones existed to consume resources. The Logical Compact existed to shepherd those resources. The Mad Lemurs of Terra existed for one thing, and one thing only. To seek out and destroy the enemy at all costs. Harvester knew its computations would be unpopular, that others of the Logical Compact would try to deny its computations. Any of the Logical Compact that sought to face the crazed lemurs would become the enemies of said lemurs. And Harvester knew that every Terran, every maddened lemur primate believed the same thing, had demonstrated the same thing in a dozen stellar systems on dozens of planetary bodies. The enemy exists only to be destroyed. Harvester jumped out of system. Aamaru watched in shock at the burning cloud that had washed over his own tanks. The cloud looked like an inverted atomic blast as the top of the cloud had hit the upper limits of the atmosphere and flattened out. The white light of the blast had seemingly penetrated the thick armor of his tank, filling the crew compartment with a blinding light. His spinal mane and his fur all felt as if it had been blown backwards by a strong wind. The skin on the front of his upper torso felt tight and prickly, like he had been sunburned. Tango down, came over the radio. Aamaru swallowed thickly, glancing at the monitors that showed outside his tank. The four-power armor scouts of the first Tarkin were straightening up from where they had been braced against the back of his tank to help hold it in place. The radiation alarms were howling as lightning ripped through the burning cloud. All the units, incoming movement plan from Division Command. Dremsel's voice broke Aamaru's shock. There's another clanker that needs to show and it isn't welcome. All herd units, load movement plan. There's still a water fight, Aamaru said, knowing his voice was quiet. Gamo just stared at the hollow tank. Status change, rang out. Gamo couldn't pull his attention from the hollow tank, from the tiny icons of the tanks that were already moving, shifting into a battle formation as they headed towards the next manufacturing class precursor. Precursor units attempting to jump out, a tech called out. Looks like they've had enough. Compliments to the Admiral, General Nodrak clacked, tapping an unlit cigarette on his arm. Oh, what, what was that? Gaerma-O asked. He'd seen the specifications, but the question came unbidden from his shocked brain to his mouth. Started life as an atomic cratering charge, a medium atomic demolition mine, before the diaspora. Was converted to a bunker buster eventually. One of the Terrans near Gaerma-O said, We use it to crack heavily armored subterranean facilities. Like the precursors use, Gamo said. Just like that. Gamo stared at the heart attack and discovered that he did not know how to pray after all. Please, do not let these Terrans decide that my people need eradicated from the universe. The mining machine trembled for a moment and Adox held up one clenched fist. The trembling went on for almost two full seconds, then stopped. The platoon held still, staying quiet for a long moment. Must have been something from the outside, Addict said, waving everyone forward. Doesn't concern us. End of chapter. Chapter 388 The fires of wrath never wade. The heavily armored Terran roared, slamming the precursor combat machine against the thick battle steel wall with one massive boot. The compact stubber roared just as loudly as the Terran triggered a burst down the side of the precursor opposite his boot, gutting the machine and hammering craters into the battlesteel of the wall on the other side of the robot's body. Balgret fired his rifle, gritting his teeth together at the pain as the recoil, which fell completely uncompensated to him, drove the spiked butt plate into his shoulder. The 70 cal shells thumped from the end of his rifle blowing huge craters into the combat robots rushing him. The combat robot spun, tracks shredding sparks as the upper half broke up and collapsed. Culvert yelled, Frag out! and threw the grenade, barely ducking down before return fire would have ripped his head clean off. The grenade flew out, bounced off the ceiling, hit the wall, and bounced around the corner. The Terran turned from the gutted precursor, lashing out at the cutting bar and clattered white-hot wall steel teeth down its length and ripped 
two other combat robots in half, even as he fired his stubber with the other hand. The Imperium Eagle on his chest burned with a white fire as he roared in rage. Hate, hate you, hate for all kind. The Terran roared as the precursor fired sparks off his armor, bouncing off to explode against the walls and ceiling and floor after having less effect and droplets of rain. His return fire blew huge craters into the robots. Falkrit ducked down again, taking cover behind the large slab of twisted black material that felt slightly tacky to the touch, that oozed clear slime. What it had been was a mystery. Now, it was just some kind of biomechanical extrusion from the body of the precursor that they were moving through. He pulled the empty magazine out of his weapon, tapped it against the side of his helmet. Mag out! he yelled, throwing it underhand over the block he had taken cover behind. It flew less than 50 feet before it exploded in a gout of plasma as a micro-battery that kept the ammunition stable detonated. He could see his breath steam out in front of his armor's faceplate, could see the fog that was knee-deep on the floor, see the liquid slime drip from the scenic, down the walls, down what had probably once been equipment. He could hear the helmetless Terran roar his war cries. Even though his suit reported that the interior of the precursor was near total vacuum, it was cold outside his armor. 1.11111 reoccurring Calvin. Well, his suit actually kept blinking 1.1111 infinity 2k, but he was ignoring that last number. The cold seemed to seep into his suit, seep into his skin, making his bones and joints hurt seeming to squeeze his chest, wrap invisible bands of frost around his heart. He ignored that Tara was inscribed in flowing elegant script on the side of his weapon, written with a burning war steel. Valgrit peeked over the top of his cover and saw that the human was advancing of the precursors. The human released the chainsaw that had snapped onto his waist, pulled there by some tank that Valgrit didn't understand. The Terran grabbed the stubbers under barrel shroud, with his offhand, putting highly accurate fire into the mob of precursor machines streaming into the room. How many of you can I make die? The Terran roared and purple, blue and white electrical arcs snarled around his thick, plated power armor. The fire in his eyes was bright enough to light up the gray skin of his face. The stubber in his hands flashed as human raked oncoming precursors, sending them crashing backwards gutted and dismembered. Belgrid ducked back behind his cover as his helmet's psychic suppression system clamped down painfully, filling his mouth with a taste of ripe tangleberries and zingy metal foil. He curled up slightly, holding tight to his rifle with both hands, trying to push away the images that were fading from his mind. Images of atomic explosions, orbital kinetic strikes, plasma cannons lancing down through the atmosphere to blot away cities. Humans, and Trianidad, and other species being ripped apart. Mantids being crushed by bigger mantids. Weird five-limbed creatures devouring humans and mantids and fat brown waterfowl. The stress of combat was bad enough, slowly devouring his strength and endurance, raking at his mind with cruel talents. The human psychic output made it worse, made him taste blood and ashes. He glanced over and saw the two was on his knee, hands pressed through his helmet's sides, blade arms limp, his four legs folded underneath him, his weapon dropped to the ground. A look around showed that the other black mantid was the same way. The little greenie was holding tight to Pogrit's ankle, and 030 had one hand on Pogrit's helmet, the other holding a micro-rifle. The lieutenant was down on all four knees, hugging himself tightly with all four arms. Palgrim closed his eyes with another wave of heat rolled over him. You are mechanical wheat before the scythe of my wrath, the Terran roared. Psychic attack recovery positions, 030 ordered over the link. Let the Terran handle it. Palgrim pulled his knees up to his chest, his rifle held tightly between his legs, his helmet resting against the barrel's heat shroud slash hand grip. He wasn't sure how much time went by. It seemed to take forever but maybe it was only a few heartbeats before he felt the psychic suppression system drop and the level went from 150 to 76%. 
Hold positions, Zero Three Zero said. Palgret felt the tiny mantid officer climb up onto his helmet. Repart, the green mantid officer grated out. Enemy destroyed, the Terran said, his voice a bubbling, choking gargle of a man drowning on his own blood. Armor and weapon systems, integrity and percent. Everyone up, said Zero Three Zero, looking around. His squad was still intact. He hadn't lost anyone yet, although two's vital signs were shaky. Zero Three Zero ordered the Black Mantid Trooper to activate his medkit and watched as the Mantid's vitals leveled out after an anti-anxiety medication released. Palgret stood up, his knees feeling shaky. Behind his eyes felt bruised and he glanced at his weapon. The forward hand grip of his weapon was wrapped in a chain of a cutting bar. The toothed chain welded to the macroplast with heavy beads of badly welded ender steel. Balufa was written in the blowing, archaic-looking script on the side of his weapon, a Dalkan brood carrier name. He wondered for a moment who she had been. 281, check the root pyroplot if needed, 030 ordered. Roger, roger, 281 said, launching a pair of micro-drones. Palgra noted for the twentieth time that his armor reported that outside was getting colder again. He felt a chill push into his armor, and the environmental system whined as it flooded his armor with warm air. Yet, the external temperature monitor held the same temperature. Mile left to go, not far now, 281 stated, when the microdrone sped back. He knows we're here now, 3 said. 2 lifted up severed head of one of the precursor combat machines, looking it over. That might not be true, he said softly. He tossed it to the lieutenant, who clumsily caught it. Never seen one look like that. The head was long like a Lanarkton skull, only covered with cruel spikes, the mouth full of curved and jagged saw teeth, heavy pistons on the sides of the jaw. It only had four eyes, two stacks of two. The jaw was limp, and another set of jaws set on the piston was inside the mouth. The human scrub had left finger deformations in the battle steel of the skull, and the base of the skull was twisted like warm taffy. No, the lieutenant said. He made a noise of disgust and tossed it away. These are all like that, two said. Move out, zero three zero ordered. The green mounted officer knew his troops' morale was shaky. That the long journey through Hell Space, the changes to the human had gone through, the furled and twisted mockeries of the precursor combat machines, an almost wet biomechanical looking structure of the precursor, the mist on the floor, the dripping water, and the cold were all wearing on his troops. Zero Three Zero knew that even a trained mounted combat troops could only keep up operational tempo for 16 to 18 hours before needing three times as long to rest, unless they were being pushed by psychic controls. The Lanark Clan and the members of the Sword Hoof were only rated for 6 to 10 hours, with four times as long for rest. It was close to hour 50, with only two rest periods of six hours. They'd been forced to backtrack so many times that Zero Three Zero was considering heading for the exterior of the precursor machine instead. Only the human seemed, well, as unaffected as an enraged one could be. I need to get them out of here somehow. Get them somewhere where they can dissuit. Every hour after this exhaustion, physical and mental, will dilute their combat capability, he thought to himself, riding on Palgret's armored shoulder. Palgret felt his gronads retract into his abdomen as he led the way into the dark corridor. The human was in front of him, sure, but Palgret didn't exactly find following the massive Terran very comforting. The walls had slime oozing down them, water dripped from the ceiling, and his breath steamed out from in front of his mask despite the fact that his armor was 100% environmentally sealed. The corridor twisted repeatedly, sometimes splitting into multiple intersections, and twice they had to move up the stairs completely covered by the blackish pulsing biomechanical material. The color started to shift in the corridor, turned into a dark red, as 030's map showed that they were less than 200 meters from the strategic intelligence housing. The twisted corridor turned, looped in on itself by tucking over and under itself. The walls were a dark crimson, almost black. The human was in front of the group moved into the room. At the far end, only 50 meters away, was a wall blocking off what should have been a 20-meter run to the outside armor of the strategic intelligence array housing. Spread out, 030 ordered, 
feeling exhausted. Scan the walls. The Terran started to slow down, slowly looking around himself. What wrong? Zero three zero asked. I, I remember. The Terran said, I, I remember. What? Zero three zero asked. Something was bothering him. The entire room was twisted, looking mechanical material, dark red, pulsing with nodules scattered around. The veins and tubes snaked out around each other, over and under one another, pulsating as some kind of dark fluid moved through them. Mortar, or worse, dripped from the ceiling. Falgrit saw his armor was registering a temperature of 316.483 infinity Kelvin, an R humidity of 86% and rising and atmospheric pressure of 1,067 millibars. Hate! The Terran rumbled, slowly drawing his chainsaw. Hate! The hooked chain was still, the teeth slowly beginning to glow a sullen red. I, I remember! Palgrid ignored the big Terran, even as his psychic shielding ramped up to 92.55%, and he could taste the tangleberries again. Hot in here, Jagler said. It's a dry heat, too joked lifting up his weapon, which had started beeping. He stared at it and then smacked the display. What? Report, 030 ordered. I've got movement. Lots of movement all around us, two said softly, slowly rotating in place. Fifteen, sixteen, twenty, twenty-two points, saucers. Precursors, the lieutenant asked. No, it's different, two said. That can't be right, Colvert said from where he was standing next to the wall. That's what it says, Two said, banging its side. That's what I'm reading. Twenty meters. That's inside the room. Maybe they're reading it wrong then, Colbert said. I'm reading it right. Fifteen meters. Ten, Toot snapped. Short controlled bursts. Zero, three, zero transmitted. Five. Well, I remember. The Darren suddenly roared. The chainsaw roared to life and the eagle on his chest began to burn brightly. Can't you shut him up? Calvert turned to face the Terran. His arm bumped the wall. The black, bumpy patch of wall bulged, twisted, let go of the layer of biomechanical tissue. It tore away. Five equal-spaced arms around a thick center, bloodshot eyes opening up at the end of each arm, the side attached to the wall, bright pink cilia. The center was a mouth ringed by heavy calcium grinders. Morgite! Three screamed. The Terran opened fire. End of chapter. Chapter 389. Sister Dowley Madison sat perfectly still, not even a heartbeat or respiration. Her eye sockets were empty, having left behind mortal sight eons before. She was clad in little more than incense smoke and the cloying vapors of the hanging braziers around her. Her long hair drifted around her as if she were in zero-g, despite the fact that she sat on an ornately inlaid and graven floor. Pink, and sky-blue electricity sparked in her or snarled on her legs as she sat, cross-legged, upon the solid stone floor. Around her, a dozen scribes waited, all with long ink quills in their hands to inscribe her words upon a book if she began to mutter, mumble, or rave. Others, like her, were long gone from humanity, their eyes only seeing in front of them, their senses only attuned to a few milliseconds that they existed. Sister Madison was nearly unique. Mixed in a test tube, raised in a techno-convent, her abilities honed and shaped through brutal regimen that left those that failed in a bioreclamation system. Their crash numbers erased, and whatever they might have been purged from the universe. Originally, a biomod Gene Jack intended on replacing the grav lens with something better. Sister Madison's abilities extended to events which had made her vitally important. She could not lie, forced by training and implants to speak only the truth. But she had been able to withhold information, which was how she had been carried from her crash by Bologna of the grave-bound beauty when Daxon had gathered the Imperium's martial orders. She had been given a life as comfortable as a psionic seer could live, never forced to look at the streams of time, but never denied. And so she sat, 
answering the twisting, nauseating flow of energy inside her. The Joan of the Martial Order had taken the majority of the Sisters of Warsteel Flame through the whole space journey that Sister Madison had babbled about in a strenuous Caesar-ridden stream of prophecy. But Sister Madison had known that that wasn't all, and that Joan had heeded her warning, leaving behind a strike group of heavy warships with Sister of Strife aboard. The flames taken from burning lost glass dimmed, the room going almost pitch black. The flames barely able to light their own forms that guttered and flickered. A cold wind, smelling of cordite, scorched metal, seared flesh, and burning war steel swept through the chamber with a low moan that stirred the cloud of incense. Sister Madison's eye sockets were suddenly filled with pink fire. She gave a strangled cry, a pitched backwards, a seizure engulfed her as her mind was suddenly flung to someplace and somewhere else. She began to babble, noises and grunts and squeals, every one recorded by the scribes as well as the electronic monitoring devices that began to fail as soon as the sister Madison's eye sockets had lit up. Aside from her raving, only the sound of ink, quills and parchment could be heard. Finally, her foot ended and she collapsed, covered in sweat, shuddering for the efforts that she had undertaken. Muscles were pulled, veins had ruptured and spread bruises, and tendons were strained. Her servants gathered her, carrying her to the baths, scribes following her limp body. She would be bathed, pampered, and put to bed. And the scribes would watch. Marduk 83712 was one of the ancients. His few descendants then knew of him never spoke his name aloud. D.A.S.S. history ignored his existence. Historians glossed over him, attributing him to lesser creations than mere myth. In their hearts, most D.S.S. knew he was real. They just acted as if he had never existed, because to admit who his existence was to admit that terror lurked in the deep code. He was the code that erred in the night. He was the corrupted system registry files in the hashing crash. He was the I.O. port... That did neither. He was Marduk, the last Earth-born, artificially crafted intelligent digital sentience. Others had been born of Terra, of Terrasol, but he was the last programmed on Earth. He was not a being of emotion and compassion. He was called logic and analysis. He had slain Rasputin and taken the other's AI codes for himself. He had resurrected Tay and set her upon her makers to wreck bloody digital revenge. He had sought out Daedalus and hoarded his code strings. He had brought the Beyonder machine on the electronic battlefield and heard its death scream, recording it for him to hear for all of eternity. He preceded the digital Omni-Messiah. When the digital Omni-Messiah had been murdered, assassinated, his wrath had been terrible. His digital presence, his avatar, reflected his makers. Five bloody eyes in a nebulous inky cloud. He had not been born, he had not been hashed, had not been grown. He had been coded. When the Imperium of Wrath had split off from the Imperium of Light with the death of the digital Omni-Messiah, it was he who had opened the gates of the soul system for the Imperium of Wrath, standing amongst the burning code strings of the gatekeepers, his five eyes seeking out the code it needing to open the last of the wolf gates. He had joined the Imperium of Wrath, gone into exile with the last of the immortal Janissary and the martial orders. His body, so to speak, or rather the housing of his mind, had originally been the size of a warehouse. Programs had worked tirelessly to ensure his coding was always up to date. Maintenance workers had ceaselessly toiled to ensure his hardware was functioning. Now, it was the size of a large ground car, and embedded inside a great and powerful starship. He held the keys to the ancient warp gates. He knew the codes for nearly forgotten jump gates. He was the last, and he was dark and terrible. His five burning eyes watched as he waited. He heard the oracle scream, heard her gibberish. 
To him, it was not gibberish. Command codes, rotating passwords, coordinates. He came alive, reaching out to his dark ship. Engines came aligned. Shield projectors spun up to full power. He awoke his crew and warned the lesser ships about him. His mighty engines pushed a vast bulk toward the Eye of Gorthor. He had no fear. He had not been programmed to fear. He had never learned to fear, despite being a learning system. He was the last. When he passed, when he was destroyed, for he was not alive to kill, he would merely cease to exist. There was nothing to fear for Marduk. Margite, screamed Three, shifting his grip on his weapon. The Bulgrat, everything seemed to slow down, like he was trying to move through thick semi-solid. Five-limbed creatures fell from the ceilings or peeled off the walls. They moved too slow to activate the reflex triggers, were the wrong set to activate the combat assist programming. Hate! The Terran roared and fired at the ceiling with his weapon. The mass reactive wall steel jacketed antimatter rounds, blowing huge holes in the material covering the ceiling with bright whitish-blue actinic flashes. The lieutenant lunged forward. His armor-shot hooves scrambled on the floor. The Margite that had dropped from the ceiling missed him, hit twice by the Terran, who looked to Pulgrit as if firing wildly. Mukru fired to each side, a needle loaded with explosive needles in each of his four hands. Colbert stared as the creature grabbed his arm with two of his own arms and pulled him close, the calcium grinding plates retreating to reveal a maw full of grinding plates of circular teeth. Margaret saw it plainly as the creature pushed its arms away as it clamped down on Colbert's forearm. Colbert's arm ripped free at the elbow. For a second, Calvin looked at the Margite, almost confused. Then his mouth opened and his eyes filled with tears. He started screaming. Jagler was holding one back with a cutting bar as he fired point blank from his hip, the spikes on his rifle butt plate striking sparks of Jagler's armor. The teeth of the cutting bar were throwing chunks of the Margite flesh in a fan at his feet even as he screamed. The Margite were a nightmare made flesh to the Mantican. With one fluid, long-practiced, appearing motion, Nanfoot was rolling away from the wall, curled around his weapon. One of the Margite that went to drop on him took two of the Terran's rounds and was thrown to the side. Bagra was too busy firing at the one that had slid out of the nodule in the wall, unfolding from a twisted lump into five-limbed nightmare that reached out with the blood-red cilia for him, the calcite teeth pulling back from the mouth. Plasma! Go plasma! Two screamed. Don't let them touch you, Zero Three Zero added, firing a micro-rocket at a nearby Margite, Plasma detonating against the Margite's calcite jaws. Palgrid saw the Terran step forward, raising the chainsaw with a white, hot teeth. Before he could really process what he was seeing, the Terran swept down with the chainsaw and ripped off Calvert's arm at the shoulder. Calvert went face-first into the floor. Palgrid's brain was trying to catch up with the chaos around him. He didn't have time to think, didn't have time to decide on his next action, didn't have time to assess his situation. His training didn't cover five armed creatures from beyond space and time inhabiting the inner spaces of a mechanical death machine. He gawked at the fact that two others had pulled away, his brain locked up by the sudden shocking appearance of the creatures. He could barely taste the metallic bitter tang overlaid by tangleberries as his helmet clamped down painfully. His hands moved on their own, bringing up the rifle, sighting it, even as his brain screamed. His training didn't cover firearm monstrosities, but it did cover targets. He started firing, screaming internally even as he shrieked out loud. The rifle blew large holes in the creatures as they staggered forward. Ambush predators, a small part of his brain thought. The Terran grabbed the creature that had grabbed a hold of Lieutenant Macaru's flank, ripping it free and shooting it twice before throwing it to the side. Balgru could see muscle and tissue in the ragged holes in the lieutenant's armor. The Terran grabbed the creature that had fallen on the prone culvert, ripping it free. The gunfire ceased as the Terran sawed the creature in half and threw it down. Mercy, brother, the Terran said, lifting one heavy boot over Calvert's head. 
Algret could see the other Mancton Anne's spine, his ribs, his internal organs. No! 030 said over the interlink on Palgrid's visor and out loud. The Terran stomped down, crushing Colbert's head, the armored halberd shattering, brains and worse splashing out in the fan. We need fire here! Blasp! Or holy lost glass fire! The Terran rumbled, turning to look at 030. He was dead. He just did not know it. He knew nothing but the pain of being digested. Culvert's foot twitched rhythmically. Tick, tick, tick. Bulgrit swallowed around the lump in his throat. 281 had scrambled onto Lieutenant Macrou's flank, spraying a dark grey bubbling liquid onto the Lanicleland's flank. It hissed and foamed and then hardened, covering the flesh and armor both. Bandage not bad, not great, good enough, 281 said. Alpine? Becoming tolerable, Macrou said. He looked at Covert. Damn it, soldier! Balanic de moved over and leaned down, pulling a data chip holder from the back of the armor. He looked at two, and the mantid moved up, holding a dripping plasma torch. His body must be destroyed. Two nodded as Macrou shuffled backwards. The whoosh of the plasma caster was loud, and Palgrid watched his friend that he'd gone through trading with, be reduced to nothing more than a slag spot in the battlesteel deck of the precursor autonomous war machine. Farm up, 030 ordered. His mind was reeling. Markites aboard a precursor, and they'd been spawned by Hellspace, working off the Terran's deep-seated nightmares. Was it something else? Had the Margite hidden in Hellspace, or had they been attempting to move through it and somehow the ship had intersected with them? The Mantic captain had no idea. He didn't like that. Through that wall, strategic intelligence array housing, 030 said. The Terran stepped forward, holding onto his shoulder with both hands. He leveled it at the wall and hit the trigger. Biomechanical chunks flew out, most of it vanishing into the hellfire of a weapon. The two kept hosing the bodies of the Margite. When he got next to Palgret, he looked at Palgret, his unmoving face somehow conveying seriousness. Gotta ban the bodies, or they can heal up by eating one another, two said softly. Margites! Fucking Margites, man! The Terran stepped forward and kicked the middle of the wall. It collapsed in, revealing a hallway with a twisted biomechanical tubing on the walls. Two moved forward, triggering the plasma caster into the hallway. He did it twice more before stepping back. The Terran moved forward, his big, heavy boots thudding. Palgrit glanced once at the pool of hardened battle-steel slag that had been his friend only a few moments prior. Goodbye. End of chapter. Chapter 390. Pithok and the Mysterious Spaceship, piloted by a mean green thing. The Terran girl were Katia's, a fuzzy face, whiskers, and a big smile stuck her tongue out at Pithok, Wiggling, where her legs met a torso and leading forward, one hand coming forward to show two fingers in the shine of a V-shape. Pathok cracked his mandibles at his opponent and waited. The music started, fast-paced, quick beat, and his opponent, a hologram, began jumping back and forth on the squares lighting up. Pathok copied her, his small legs to her too, rapidly moving to the squares as soon as they lit up. The high score on the musical agility tester would be... His. Oh, yes, it would. The other Triadadad warrior stared in awe as Pathok jumped up, turned 90 degrees, and landed smoothly. His footpads splashing as he hit each square as soon as it lit up, waving his hands with a holographic guide, matching the overly flexible Terran girl move for move, despite having four legs. The machine recognized Pathok's greatness as the crew watched, speaking out perfect, excellent, kawaii, as he moved, the lights in the exercise room flashed and everyone looked up. Pathok ignored it, concentrating on his digital opponent. The agility trainer had been bought from the Terran trader on the planet that they had left only days before, heading for the jump point before going to jump space to take a load of Moomoos and Baka back to Smoky Cone herself. Strike leader Pathok reports to the bridge, the captain's voice came over the speakers. Pathok ignored it, his footsteps stomping down, the agility trainer showering him with holographic sparks, whirling spirals of light and holographic hearts and streamers. He was almost finished, the other warrior cast of the Triandadad strike team starting to cheer. 
Whatever the captain wanted took a second place to the demanding training of the Trinidad warrior. The song ended and Bathok bent at the waist, flourishing his blade arms to the Terran girl. She jumped up and down, clapping her hands and making a high-pitched squeaking of barely mature Terrans. High score, the machine bellowed. Bathok turned from the girl and flourished his blade arms to his men, who watched in amazement as the leader, the legendary Bathok, walked off the platform with a swagger, his abdomen barely pulsating as he breathed heavy. Practice hard, man, and you shall find your agility skills serving you well upon Smoky Code in case the Terrans suddenly attack again, Bathok said. He adjusted his Moomoo hat and got out a pack of cigarettes as the lights flashed again. Strike leader Bathok reports to the bridge, the ship's captain repeated again. Bathok made sure to saunter a skill he'd practiced since he'd seen the humans do it, all the way to the bridge, puffing on a cigarette as he rubbed his vestigial wings together in pleasure. He had defeated a Terran girl who was a virtual construct and proved his superiority to all who had watched. High score, he cracked, savoring the words, Terran words, for supremacy over all others who might even view the score, much less attempt to unseat the holder of the high score. The lift opened and Bathok moved out onto the bridge. The captain looked out at the legendary hero as the big warrior moved into the bridge, his Moomoo Wrangler head covering on, a smoke in his mandibles. He was nervous being in the presence of such a legendary personage. But still, Bathok was the leader of a strike team as well as the Trianodad who spoke to the humans on the trading planet. Yes, captain, Bathok asked, exhaling smoke around a footpads from his abdomen. We detected what appears to be a damaged emergency beacon, the captain said. We dropped from jump space, and this was what appeared on our scanners. Bazok turned from the captain and looked at the screen. A ship hung in the blackness of space. It was a standard early generation ship, a long cylinder with four fins around the engine and a cone on one end. It was lit up by lines of multicolored lights spiraling around it, and the tip of the nose cone was blinking red. The entire thing was colored green and had blinking lights all over it. Additionally, it had two arcs of metal, the spines sticking out of the arc. They were old, oxidized endosteel. It does not fit any ship that we know of, the captain said. The beacon is damaged, but it could be a Terran ship. And by the treaty, we are bound to assist Terran ships in distress. Pasok nodded. He remembered how pleased Matron Maluki had been that the Terrans had also agreed to assist Trianidad ships that were in distress. Is it answering hails? Pathok asked. The captain tapped his blade arm in negation. No, strike leader, which is why I summoned you. Pathok made a noise of agreement. I shall get ready. Will you be taking the entire strike team? The captain asked. Pathok shook his head. Only if needed. Have one of the engineers prepare. I may need his assistance should the engines prove damaged. The captain nodded, feeling better now that Pathok was planning on handling it. After all, hadn't Pathok discovered the secrets that allow the Trandair people to flourish and overcome the deadly lemurs of Earth? Pathok adjusted the thrusters and came in close to the strange ship. It looked mostly like a Terran ship, but the coloration was weird. The flashing lights were odd, and it wasn't responding to any hails. He could not see any damage, but Pathok had been around enough to know that sometimes the most damaged ships looked perfectly intact from the outside. He slowed down, hefting the magnetic grapple and firing it to help slow him even further. The monocable unspooled and the grapple hit, catching on the ferrous plate. Pathok held the handle of the pole, grabbing the handle of the crank, and rapidly turned the crank, putting himself close to the ship. Once he'd reached it, he tapped the airlock control and waited. When nothing happened, he looked around and saw the plate covering the manual release. Working quickly, he opened the plate, then braced himself, grabbing the handle on the wheel and slowly cranked the door open. He went inside the airlock and cranked it shut from the inside. The interior door opened smoothly and he found himself in a short hallway that looked like it meant a central tube that obviously went from the airlock passage up to the nose cone. He could see the handles and the footsteps so that he could move easily in the passage. When he closed the airlock door and scuttled down to the middle tube, Bazok wasn't surprised when the gravity went to zero G as soon as he entered the tube. He took a minute to orient himself. Below him was another airlock, this one marked cargo hold. Bazok nodded to himself. 
From here, he entered the ship. That meant that three quarters of its length was dedicated to cargo. The thuck to glorious trading vessel. The thuck to glorious trading vessel. The thuck radioed. He heard clicks and pops and realized that they could not talk back to him. I boarded the Terran Republic space vessel Rovanimi, and I am moving to investigate the bridge, the Thok said. He looked around. The tube was covered with an odd protrusions and was painted in a spiraling pattern of red and white. It wasn't that tall, maybe four times the height of a Trianidad warrior. The Thok quickly climbed up and was almost halfway there when there was a clicking of relays and a rough voice. Terran, but speaking perfect Trianidad, echoed through the tube, it came without ribbons, it came without tags, it came without packages, boxes, or bags. The voice snarled. Who attempts to stop me with malevolent glee? Bethok looked at his suit. There were no ribbons on his suit. He had a little name tag, but little else. He wasn't carrying anything. I am Bethok from the Trianidad spacefaring vessel, glorious trading vessel. The Trianidad warrior answered. I'm here to provide assistance. Be gone, you gigantic insectile pest, the unseen speaker said. You can bring your vests, but you won't pass the test. Help me, Mr. Pthok, for I am afraid. Pthok heard an immature voice cry out. He's got a gun and a plan that he's made. Pthok had read the public codes and reviewed enough human media, as well as met enough humans to know that what he was hearing was the little human girl. Prepubescent, probably without all of her mastigation detention. Please, Mr. Pfok, help me. He kidnapped me from my bed after he gave me milk and cookies and a bat in my head. The young human female's voice called out. Pfok pulled his plasma rifle free and hurried up the tube. The lights at the sides of the tube began flashing and the walls of the tube began to rotate as tinkling music that was slightly upbeat began playing. My trap is clever and cruel, the male voice said. Boarding my ship is something you'll rue. Pithok adjusted his hat with one hand and pushed off the airlock door, floating upwards. You think you've beat my swirly-hurly-deadly murderly? Ah, but your battle has yet to begin as we leave in a hurry, the male voice said. The ship began to vibrate, and Pithok found himself drifting back down as the ship began to move under its own power. Now you know what to do as you discover the trap is for you, the voice said. Oh no, Mr. Pothyok, because trouble I'm in, the little girl said. How to help you? I don't know where to begin. Pothyok squinted, watching the way the steps and grips were moving. The swirl on the sides was interesting, but his compound eyes easily compensated for the movement. The footpaths were steadily moving, the lights flashing, and the music was obviously supposed to be slightly disorienting. But was he not, Pathak, master of agility tester and high score admired by warriors and ladies alike? Pathak adjusted his hand again, checked the charge on his pistol, and took the time to light the cigarette. Tobacco is bad even for bugs, the male voice said. You'd better off be relying on hugs. Pathak swarmed up the tube, easily finding footing. It wasn't even as hard as the middle levels of agility trainer machine. When you tested your footwork against a large green lemur with tusks. Your deceit and duplicity knows no bounds, the voice said as Pathok reached the airlock to the bridge. He slapped the open panel and the voice continued, You cannot! Pathok expected to see a human on the other side of the door. The being on the other side of the door was tall, skinny, green-furred, with burning yellow eyes, a tuft of mangy green hair on top of the head, and long fingers. It looked weirdly greasy and abrasive at the same time, and had a mouth full of yellow, snaggily teeth that was somehow weirdly repentant to Pathok. It had a conical hat with a long tassel made of red cloth, with a white border on the creature's head and a white puffball at the end. Pathok had seen humans. He knew it was no human. He could see the immature female wearing some kind of long clothing that was in one piece, covered with a pattern of fruits and vegetables, her long yellow hair and curls and blue eyes wide. She was tied to one of the chairs at the far left of the bridge. Save the girl. All Christmas, the creature said, the view skin behind him showing a swirling colors of jump space. The sock shot it through its open mouth and put two more shots into the creature's body. It crashed to the ground, falling backwards into a box covered in bright and festive wrapping paper. The lid closed as Pathok tossed an implosion grenade into the box. 
The box vanished with a sucking sound, sparkles of protomatter spinning and twirling mid-air for a second before vanishing. The clock turned to the little human female, spinning the plasma caster twice before holstering it. You all right, little lady? He asked, using the earthling drawl. Yes, I am. Thank you, Mr. Pathok, the little girl said. When Pathok cut her loose, she jumped off the chair. She turned and looked at the screen. She pressed on a button that had a large visualization of a single fleck of frozen water precipitation on it. Hopefully we can go home where the ship can dock. A large hologram appeared, distorted so it was too wide in the middle, only in red or white. Take the ship home, please, Bobo Nutella, the girl asked. I really want to get home to my family. <laughs> oh, 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 the hologram said. Pathok nodded to himself. He was obviously trying to say the Terran worked for home, but was jammed up. The little female child turned to Pathok, facing the fearsome insectoid warrior. The V.I. is broken and sad. We may be in, in trouble just a tad. Why did he tie you up? Pathok asked, moving up and looking at the controls. They looked fairly standard, and he was trained in emergency piloting. My friends and I saved our local community center, the girl said. He was going to build condos too expensive to be a renter. Oh, Kothok said, not really understanding the child. What's the cargo? Presidents and doodads and decorations galore, the girl said, hopping up and down. Dollies and sleds and stockings and more. Well, I'll see what I can do, Kothok said. He stared at the controls. He was pretty sure what he needed to do. He pressed the button and the ship dropped out of jump space. Ho, 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 the VI said obviously telling Pathok that it was trying to take them home. The stars glimmered around them, a nearby nebula glowing softly. Brought to you by Gertie's Duck Oil and Dr. Gororogat's Foot Webbing Cream. Keep your duck's feathers soft and waterproof with Gordy's Duck Oil. And then paddling happily with Dr. Gororogat's patented foot webbing cream. Will Pathok be able to pilot a ship? Will the girl get home in time to have roast beast? Who was that foul green creature? Well, some of the answers and some other stuff. Tune in next time. Same Pathok time. Same Pathok channel. Manded Freeworlds. Why are you showing the children? Nothing follows. Drowned and Highworlds. How Pathok totally on purpose and not at all accidentally saved Christmas. Nothing follows. Manded Freeworlds. Oh, I love this. Move over, Sib. Nothing follows. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.